0: Well good morning, there you go, a little enthusiasm, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Richard Caskey, I'm one of the elders here at uh, Christ Community Bible Church and apparently I came the closest to winning the Tyndale alike Contest and therefore won the prize of being able to preach this morning on William Tyndale. Now that's not true but um, I would have come close. Let me open us up in prayer before we we dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we come to you humbly this morning. As we open your word, Father, we pray that you would be the one uh, illuminating our eyes. Father, we pray that uh, you would use this time, uh, Lord, for our good. And Father, uh, I pray that somehow you would use me Lord, though uh, I am weak and frail, that I can help people see the treasure that your word is. Lord, when we say it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, Lord, I pray that that would be what we learned this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time now, we do pray that you would use it for our good and for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are in part three of our three-part series on Reformation Now. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Jared has preached on Martin Luther and on John Calvin. And if you missed either or both of those sermons, I would encourage you to go online to our website and to listen to those sermons. He did an amazing job on that. But uh, right now and today, we are going to focus on a man named William Tyndale. Now, if you don't know who William Tyndale is, I want you to, if you have a copy of God's Word to hold it up in front of your face. If you are a native English speaker or native Texan speaker, to hold up this word in front of your face, this is a treasure that we have. 500 years ago, that couldn't be said unless you had one of the rare copies of Wycliffe's translation, which were outlawed. You did not have the word of God in your native tongue. Today, folks, we have a treasure. And we can thank William Tyndale for his work that he had done in doing this. William Tyndale is considered the father of the English Bible. Even though he penned these words more than 500 years ago, there are still many of his words are still in our current translations. In fact, you could go... Fast forward almost 100 years from his translation, when they translated the King James Bible, a full 83% of the King James Bible in 1611 were Tyndale's words. 100 years later. He was a gifted man, a gifted scholar, and gifted in languages. He is considered the father of the English Bible. He is also considered the father of the English Reformation so even though the Reformation was begun perhaps by Wycliffe, who's called the morning star of, of the, the Reformation, it was Tyndall who put Reformed theology into the hands of the people by putting Scripture into the hands of the people. So you see, the more we study Scripture the more reformed our theology would be. And what do I mean by that? It's a theology of grace. That we are saved by grace and not by works. That was not the theology 500 years ago. And William Tyndale put this word in people's hands and they saw the truth of scripture and the truth of salvation by grace. William Tyndale is also called the father of modern English. So I did a quick search online, and I said, who is the father of modern English? And most of the responses came back and said, oh, it was Geoffrey Chaucer. Some would say, oh, it was, it was Shakespeare, who was the father of modern English. But several years back, there was a joint statement by the British Library and the U.S. Library of Congress, and they said, contrary to what history teaches about Chaucer being the father of the English language, this mantle belongs to William Tyndale, whose work was read by 10,000 times as many people as Chaucer. So a lot of what we have in our English language today was formulated by Tyndale. We owe a lot to him. He was brilliant in that. And although the Reformation began more than 500 years ago, it continues through today. We have a series called Reformation Now. Now, a Reformation is not about new ideas or new revelation. The Reformation is about going back to the original. The Reformation is about resetting to what Scripture teaches about Christ, what Scripture teaches about salvation. It had been distorted. It had been heretical, saying that we could save ourselves by our works. Reformation is going back. And that's why we say we're in a constant state of reformation, because we need to constantly go back to what Scripture says, to what the truth is about salvation. When I've done evangelism in this area and you talk to people and you ask them, why do they think they should go to heaven? The most common answer by far is their good works. That's the false teaching. That's the heresy. The reformation is about going back, back to the original, back to authentic Christianity. And that's what this series has been about. Authentic Christianity. I'm going to read the text again. This text is beautiful. It's Psalm 19. In fact, C.S. Lewis would say that this is probably the most perfect poem ever written. He just absolutely adores this. And uh, if you were to do a search through hymnals over the ages, and many of them would turn to the Psalms to draw inspiration for hymns and for, for songs, Psalm 19 would stand head and shoulders above them all. Let's hear the word of the Lord again. It says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. a shepherd boy named David was out in the fields and, and, and by day he would look up and he would see this mighty sun move across the sky and at night he would see the stars and the moon. And day after day and night after night he would see the glory of God's creation. But the glory of God's creation must point then to one who's even more glorious than the creation. So while creation does not teach us about God's grace or mercy or justice, it does teach us about His power and His divine nature. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 1, "...for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And this is what the glory of God means. It is the revelation of God's existence and power so great that every human on the face of the earth should seek God and praise and worship Him. It is the brilliant demonstration of His excellencies, His beauty, His holiness, His virtue. This testimony of God is continuous. The scripture says that it's day by day and night by night. You you can't miss it. This glory of God is always there. Always on display. And it is abundant. It's gushing forth like a spring. You can't miss it. This is the glory of God. There is a creator God who is all-powerful. He is the mighty one. He is wise. We can see that from His creation. And you can't miss that. Therefore, man is without excuse. And it's universal. Scripture says, there is no one on earth, no matter what language they speak, who cannot see the glory of God on display. That's a universal language. The heavens declare the glory of God and everybody. Is a witness to that. David goes on to describe the sun as kind of God's crowning achievement in the heavens. He describes it in language that conveys youthful strength, energy, and physical joy. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber or a strong man preparing and ready to compete. And the last line of this description is, is very important. Nothing is hidden from its heat. You can't miss it. It's easy to picture that, especially here in Texas and during the summer. It seems almost impossible to escape the Texas heat. Even at night, it's hot here in Texas. So mankind is without excuse. Now, we often refer to this first portion of this psalm that declares creation creation. Declaring God's glory as general revelation. General revelation is when creation speaks to who God is. David vividly points this out to us. But the next section, beginning in in verse 7, we refer to a special revelation. And in this case, he's talking about the special revelation, which is the word of God. You see, while general revelation can teach us about God's existence and about His power, it can't tell us how to know Him. Now, mankind is still without excuse because with that knowledge alone, all of mankind should be seeking God. But we can't know who He is apart from special revelation. Verses 7-10 through describe the perfections of God's Word and its effects on God's people. It revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, and enlightens the eyes. While general revelation is enough to convince people there is a Creator God, and we should seek Him, it doesn't tell us how we can know Him. Again, in Romans, Paul writes, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ while the created universe is indeed marvelous, we still need scriptures to fully know God. Well, approximately 2,500 years, that's 2,500 years after David penned these words in Psalm 19, another man was proclaiming the beauty and absolute necessity of the word of God. During David's lifetime, He was being pursued at one point. He was being hunted by King Saul to be killed. Years later, this man, 2,500 years later, was also being hunted. His crime was simple. He dared to translate the Bible into a language other than Latin. The penalty for this crime was death. Alistair McGrath wrote... The dangerous new idea, firmly embodied at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, was that all Christians had the right to interpret the Bible for themselves. To do that, they need to have it in their own language. There was an English merchant named Stephen Vaughan, who had been sent by Thomas Cromwell, who was an advisor to King Henry VIII, to go to the continent of Europe to find William Tyndale and to persuade him to return to England. Vaughn was able to correspond with Tyndale and even met secretly with him on three different occasions, urging him to give up this translation work and to return to England. Tyndale declared to him his strong loyalty to the king and that he said he was living in poverty and in danger his whole time while he was on the run. Yet he had only one request of the king. In order for him to return, the king had to authorize the Bible in the English language. No matter what Vaughn tried to do to persuade him, Tyndale had one request and one request only. In a letter to the king, Vaughn wrote, I find him always singing one note. And that note was, will the king of England give his endorsement for an English Bible? When the king heard this, the next person he sent to find Tyndale was not sent to persuade him to return, but to arrest him. So what brought all of Western Christianity to a place where the Holy Scriptures were reserved only for the clergy and only in Latin? What was it that caused them, who claimed to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, to seek and to kill men like Tyndale? The spiritual darkness that enveloped Western Europe did not happen overnight. It was a thousand years in the making. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly when this decline began or what propelled it into its decline. But it began somewhere around the 5th century AD. Some of the reformers would point to the Pelagian controversy that had occurred back then and the slow but steady resurgence of this heresy. You see, in the 5th century, there was a monk named Pelagius from Britain. And he claimed that when the fall occurred in the Garden of Eden, nothing bad really happened. Mankind was not cast into this world of sin. He said simply, what had happened was, mankind was given a bad example that's it. Christ came to give us a good example. We can choose. He would say the grace of God is the fact that we can choose the good example over the bad example. In other words, you can earn your salvation by works and by doing good things. Well, uh, Augustine contradicted this. And Augustine said, no, 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 that's not what happened. When mankind fell, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, mankind, and that is all of their descendants, were cast into the world of sin and death. It's a realm that they could not escape. And so unless God did something on their behalf, unless God does something for mankind, we are without hope. But God, in His mercy saw us in our pitiful condition knowing that we could do nothing to save ourselves he sent his only son to pay the penalty that we could be saved. And that's what Augustine said. But this Pelagian controversy, though it was struck down by various councils would slowly resurge, would slowly come back and people would start saying, well, no, 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 you, you, you can do good things and you can begin to earn your salvation. And over time, that even came into the point where not just do good works. I mean, because quite frankly, if you can do good works to earn your salvation, is there any reason you couldn't pay for it to? And that's what the church said. They came up with these things called indulgences, which means if you pay the church, we'll write a note for you. Kind of get out of hell free card. We'll give that to you because you paid us for it. That's what an indulgence basically is. And so that's what had grown. And over a thousand years, this had really grown into a heresy. And this is what the reformers were seeing. And they're going, that's wrong. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by paying the church. saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And that argument was being crushed by the church. So during this 1,000 years... Western Europe went through a lot of upheaval. Uh, In 410 AD, Rome fell. There were the Crusades that occurred during this time. But also, universities began to pop up. And in the mid-1300s, the Black Death came to Europe. And it's estimated that 50% of the population died in just a few short years in Europe. But shortly after the Black Death had come through, there was a renaissance that occurred. Now, it wasn't religious. It wasn't spiritual. It was people seeking to go back to the old Greek and Roman cultures and grab what they could And so this is all leading up to this reformation. And the church during this time was gaining power. And it had rule over every aspect of your life. It had rule over your religious life. It had rule over politics. It had rule over government, over economics, over education. The church was in absolute control and it became absolutely corrupted. So not only did they see themselves having a role of preaching and teaching morality, but they became the enforcers as well. Pope Innocent II claimed that even kings and nobles derived their authority from the Pope. And in 1302, the Pope declared that salvation was not possible outside the Catholic Church. And further, the Pope had all authority within the Church. And so what happened was, Church traditions, the teachings of the church, superseded Scripture. And so people only lived by what the church taught. And what we had were people who were illiterate in the Scriptures, had no idea what the Scripture said. And even many of the clergy didn't know what the Scripture said. Even though the Scriptures were in Latin, And there were an estimated 20,000 priests in England. It's estimated that very few of them actually spoke Latin. They could read it, but they had no idea what it meant. People were illiterate to Scripture. And this is what the Reformers saw. So, in addition to some of those other traditions, there were... uh, things like penance and, and praying to the saints and pilgrimages and the abuses of the clergy. And so by the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church had referred to a form of Pelagianism or salvation by works, and salvation by grace through faith was lost. And so what we had was a a, a spiritually dark time in the world in Western Europe. There was no way for the people to know what the truth was. Yet, yet there was hope. God raised up an Englishman named John Wycliffe in the, seven, in the 1370s who would be known as the morning star of the Reformation. And he began to condemn some of these traditions that the church had begun to call law. And he began to call people back to the scriptures. And in the 1380s, he translated the Bible from Latin into English, what we call now Middle English. And the king of England, not wanting this in 1401, passed the edict on the burning of a heretic, which demanded that all of Wycliffe's Bibles and teachings must be turned over to be burned. And if you failed to do so, you would be burned. So there was a great hostility to the word of God in your own language. Others, such as John Huss of modern Czechoslovakia, would agree with Wycliffe, and in 1402, he began preaching for for reforms in the Catholic Church. Soon thereafter, though, his followers were beheaded, and in 1415, he was burned at the stake. But within 50 years of that, two major events would take place. One would be the fall of Constantinople. So when the Muslim invasion came to the capital of Constantinople, the Christians there fled, and they fled west to Western Europe, but they took with them Greek and Hebrew scriptures, Greek and Hebrew writings, things that the Western church had lost for centuries. They brought that with them. And about the same time that that occurred, a man named Gutenberg figured out a movable type printing press, and now books, and things could be printed efficiently and quickly, and all of a sudden, ideas could begin to spread. There was a man named Erasmus, who in 1516 printed the Greek New Testament. And this meant that the Bible could now be read in the original language and, uh, instead of what people just saw with the Latin Vulgate. And they could also see the errors that were in the Latin Vulgate. A year after that, Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg. And in 1522, he had translated the scriptures into German. Now, William Tyndale was born around 1594 in Gloucestershire, which is near modern-day Bristol. So that's kind of towards the west side of England. It was a cloth-making area. Of England, And the Tyndall family was, was well connected to the wool merchants and to the landowners of the area. And at age 12, William Tyndale entered Magdalen Hall, which was located inside Magdalen College attached to Oxford University. He would spend 10 years there. His first two years were basically a preparatory grammar school, where he studied grammar, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music theory, and so on. When he entered Oxford after those first two years, he demonstrated a great aptitude for language, and he would eventually be ordained as a priest. They say that he could speak eight different languages, and he spoke them well enough that you could not tell he was not a native speaker. Well, after he graduated with his bachelor's degree, he set out for a master's degree from Oxford. And it was not until he'd finished his master's degree that he was allowed to study theology. And even then, it was only what was called speculative theology. In other words, priority was given to Greek philosophers rather than the scriptures. Tyndale would say of his education, In the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on scripture until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of scripture. The scripture is locked up with false expositions, and with false principles of natural philosophy. After Oxford, John Fox reports that Tyndale studied at Cambridge University, and by 1519, when Tyndale arrived at Cambridge, it had become a hotbed for the Protestant teachings of Martin Luther. That was only two years prior that he had posted those uh, 95 theses. And earlier in that decade, a Dutch Renaissance humanist named Uh, Erasmus, had lectured at Cambridge. And it was Erasmus who had published the Greek New Testament in 1516. In 1520, a small group of these Cambridge scholars began meeting regularly to discuss this new, different theology. They gathered at a local pub, the White Horse Inn, to discuss Luther's ideas. This little group became known as Little Germany. And of this little group that studied together, Two would become archbishops. Seven would become bishops. And eight would be martyred for their faith and their Protestant belief. By 1521, Tyndall decided he needed to spend more time studying the Greek New Testament. So he moved back home towards where he, near where he grew up in Gloucestershire and he took up employment with a man named John Walsh. John Walsh had two sons and so... Tyndale would be his tutor for the sons. He would also be the, the family chaplain and a personal secretary for John Walsh. Now, John Walsh loved to hear his ideas and would often invite different clergy and folks from the Catholic Church, and they would kind of debate around the, the dinner table. And he liked that. Tyndale also preached regularly at small nearby at a small nearby church and and at different churches in the region. And he concluded, it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth, except the scripture were laid before their eyes in the mother tongue. So imagine showing up to church every Sunday here and nothing was done in our language. The scriptures weren't read in English and the service would be conducted in a language you did not know. How could you understand salvation? How could your life be transformed by the word of God let's take a look back at psalm 19 in verse 7 verse 7 there's not only a a transition from general revelation to special revelation but the name that is used for God also changes in these first six verses the name of God is El, or to be understood as the mighty one Picture the vast cosmos and the mighty one who created it all. But beginning in verse 7, the name of God is the personal name of God, Yahweh. This is the name of God in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve. When God was involved with man, it is his covenant name whereby he relates to mankind. While the heavens declare the glory of the mighty God, the Scriptures reveal Him personally in relationship to man. Beginning in verse 7, Scripture is denoted in six different ways. It's kind of six ways or names of description of the Scriptures. It is the law of the Lord, or instruction for life. This is the entirety of Scripture, the Word of God. It is the testimony of the Lord. This is the truth that God himself attests about himself. It is the precepts of the Lord. These are the instructions given to us for our own welfare, for our own good, our own benefit. It is the commandment of the Lord. These two are authoritative orders given to us by God. It is the fear of the Lord. Now this is, is a metonymy. That's a Hebrew literary device that substitutes one thing for something related to it. And in this case, the effect or fear is substituted for the cause of that, which is scripture. The scriptures are designed for us to have a healthy reverence for God. Deuteronomy 4.10 says, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me All the days they live on the earth. Finally, Scripture is the rules of the Lord. These are the case law judgments given in the Scriptures. They present a hypothetical situation. And then they explain how to apply God's word to that situation. In every case, the term is accompanied by the phrase, Of the Lord. This is a reminder that all of Scripture has its origin and its focus is on the Lord. David goes on to describe God's word in six magnificent attributes. The word of God is perfect. It is complete. It lacks nothing. It is fully comprehensive and sufficient. Second Peter 1 3 says it contains everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know to have a relationship with God and everything that we need to know to imitate Him are found in His precious and magnificent promises. The Word of God is sure. It is trustworthy. It is worthy of our trust because it corresponds to reality. If we follow the Word of the Lord, it will lead to salvation, contentment, joy, eternal life. The word of the Lord is right. It is straight. It is not misleading. It is a compass for us that we can trust. There is great joy when we follow the straight path of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is pure. It is radiant. It is the very word of God that makes true spiritual vision possible. It lights our path so that we can walk without stumbling. It pushes away the darkness so we can see clearly without distortion. And the word of the Lord is clean or flawless. Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Corrupt things decay. Purity endures. The word of God is entirely pure, without error, deficiency, fault, or inadequacy. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And finally, the word of the Lord is true. It is reliable. It will not change. It will always faithfully show us God's perfect will. And what does it do for us? It revives the soul. And the basic element, this is bringing a dead man back to life. The spiritually dead are revived by the word of God. For those who are believers... It restores strength and vitality. It's our spiritual food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The scriptures are the bread and meat for the Christian. God's word is our life. It makes wise the simple. This is how we become skillful in daily living. But it's more than reading it. We must apply it and we must do it to become wise. We must practice it to become wise. We must open, be open to the instruction of Scripture. It rejoices the heart. Scripture confirms God's faithfulness in a world filled with trouble. As Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. God's word brings joy to the despondent heart. The promise of, uh, promises of God birth joy. And finally, it enlightens the eyes. In a world marked by darkness, ignorance, and depravity, It is the scriptures that help us to navigate in this world. This is what Tyndale saw and what he realized, that the word of God must be made available to the people in a language they can understand. And this was not popular with the Catholic Church. Tyndale tried to convince the church leaders of this need. In one of his most famous encounters with a Catholic leader who was dining with the Walsh family and Tyndale, The scholar became so frustrated with Tyndale's insistence on an English Bible, he asserted, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. Did you hear that? Do you you understand what it meant when they were elevating church tradition above scripture? He had declared he would rather have the Pope's teachings than the word of God. And here is probably Tyndale, one of his most famous quotes that we have. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow shall know more of Scripture than he does. And from this point forward, Tyndale became singularly focused. He wanted the Scriptures translated into English. He tried the legal route and he traveled to London in 1523 to seek official authorization from Bishop Tunstall. This seemed reasonable since Tunstall had worked with Erasmus on the Greek New Testament. But see, the year before, Luther had published the German Bible. And it, became, it, it started such a, an upheaval in Germany that Tunstall was fearful that this would happen in England if they translated the Bible into English. So Tunstall just basically stonewalled Tyndall on this. But he used that time to formulate a plan. And during this time, he met a wealthy cloth merchant named Humphrey Monmouth, who decided to underwrite Tyndall's expenses. And in the spring of 1524, at age 30, Tyndall slipped away to the European continent to begin his translation. He knew it would be a clear breach of law. Every word he translated would be translated illegally. He would live in this self imposed exile for the rest of his life as a fugitive and an outlaw of the English crown. He lived in Germany and possibly met with Luther while he was there. Nonetheless, he finished his translation of the New Testament in 1525 while in Cologne, Germany. He found a printer who agreed to print his new translation. But the secrecy of what they were doing was compromised when one of the print workers, under the influence of wine, spoke about it, and the authorities heard, and the shop was raided. Tyndale was able to grab his translation and escape in the cover of night. He went to the city of Worms and found another printer. This time he printed the New Testament, and he hid them in bales of cotton to sneak them into England. Once there, they made it past the royal agents and into the hands of a secret Protestant society who distributed the Bible. Each copy cost three shillings and two pence, or about a week's wage for a skilled laborer. This was a very reasonable price, and copies were purchased by merchants, by students, by tailors, by bricklayers, and by peasants, all of them hungry for the word of God. Those Bibles were discovered later that year, and it enraged the church officials, so they hatched an ingenious plan to stop the spread of these unauthorized Bibles, they decided to purchase all of the remaining copies and then they would burn them. But that plan backfired because, with the money from the sale of those Bibles that were remaining, Tyndale was able to produce a second revised version with that large money and a larger print run. And from this translation, we have terms and phrases we still use today, probably sometimes without even knowing it. But he was a brilliant translator. He's the one that coined the terms, let there be light. There are different ways to translate that. It was Tyndale. He said, am I my brother's keeper? Is how he translated in Genesis. In John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. William Tyndale, there were shepherds abiding in the field. Do you kind of get the sense just from his words that the shepherds were out there? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of my favorites, when the apostle Peter had denied Christ the third time, and he locked eyes with Christ as, as Jesus was being led out and, and the apostle Peter was, was warming himself and he had just denied Christ the third time, as Christ said, when just the night before he said, if all of these other disciples abandon you, I will never abandon you. And Christ said, no, you're gonna deny me three times. And on the third time, Christ is coming out, they lock eyes and it said that Peter went away and wept bitterly. Do you get this sense Of Peter's heart with those words wept bitterly. Almost all English translations still use that today. There was one modern translation that tried to improve upon it and said that Peter went away and cried hard. (laughs) Which do you prefer? This is a brilliant man. He understood cadence, he understood the language. He was a master craftsman of words. His translations were simple and clear. He toiled over all of the things, including the cadence and rhythm. When, when the shepherds came to see Christ on the night of his birth, all who heard it wondered about what had happened and Mary pondered what had happened. Do you hear that? The wondered and pondered. He's using the English language and and, and getting a flow and a cadence. And, and they're... There are many more things that I hear and I've read about this. And I was reading a a great book by David Daniels on on the history of the English Bible and on Tyndale. And he's talking about all these nuances of of translation that William Tyndale figured out and that he did. And I just just kind of said, I get that, I get that. I, I didn't get it all, but I was talking to a book. So I figured it was okay uh, to say that. But it's just a brilliant translation, and this man was very good. But there were, there were four words, particularly four translations, that, that the church officials disliked greatly. Instead of translating priests, he translated elders. And instead of saying church, he said congregation. Instead of charity, Love. And instead of do penance, repentance. And that was Luther's big concern about the indulgences. It was not to do penance, but to repent. So Tyndale looked at the Greek and saw a different gospel emerge. And he was fully grounded in sovereign grace. He was unwavering in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of man. Tyndale knew that the cause of the corrupt state of the church was its corrupt doctrine. And until the doctrine of the church was corrected, the abuses would continue. And on this issue turned the entire Reformation. To Tyndale, the doctrines of grace, as we discussed here, were that man is lost and condemned, God is sovereign, Christ is sufficient, and grace through faith is all you need. That is the great heresy of William Tyndale. And it was a radical return to the original teachings of Christ in the scriptures. Tyndale produced a revised copy in 1534. Some say he made as many as 5,000 changes. One of the big reasons for that is during that time, he had learned Hebrew. Hebrew. And he realized that a lot of the quotes and allusions in the New Testament from the Hebrew, and he was able to translate much better. But in the spring of 1535, a young merchant named Henry Phillips had squandered, that is, he gambled his father's fortune away. And he was in great debt. And he was desperate, didn't want daddy to find out. And the church heard about it. You see, it was the merchants who had been protecting Tyndale in Europe. So the church went to this young man and they said, we'll cover your debt if you can go find Tyndale. So he went over to mainland Europe and eventually he found and befriended William Tyndale. The other merchants didn't trust young Henry, but William Tyndale, perhaps being a little bit naive, befriended him. And on May 21st, 1535, Henry led William Tyndale into a narrow alley and there he betrayed him to the authorities waiting for him. Tyndale was taken into a castle prison and incarcerated for 16 months. In August of 1536, he was condemned as a heretic. He was dressed in his priestly garments, which were then ceremoniously removed and the palms of his hands scraped to show that he was no longer a priest. He was tied to a stake and had a chain placed around his neck. Before the chain tightened, he cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He was then strangled and his body burned, with gunpowder added to further destroy the burned body. That same year, King Henry had approved an authorized version of the Bible in English. Tyndall had translated the entire New Testament and much of the Old Testament, and his work was and has still been included in English translations, ever since. Back in Psalm 19, David continued in verse 10. The word of the Lord is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter than honey. See, it's by the word of the Lord that we are warned. We are warned about the consequences of sin. We are warned what happens to uh, to sinners But it also says in keeping them there is great reward. We are taught of salvation. We are taught about the grace that God bestows upon those who trust in Him. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. You see there's there are many things that we do that we sin and we don't even realize it. But then he says keep keep your servant back also from presumptuous sins. And see this is where the word of God is used so that the presumptuous sins do not have dominion over us because then we can be declared blameless and innocent from these great transgressions of presumptuous sins. And the prayer should be the prayer of all of us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what are our key takeaways from the life of Tyndale? First, he was committed to the truth of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. Um, Nothing could be further from the truth, and yet this lie has perpetuated across millennia. This is why we studied the doctrines of grace here at Christ Community Bible Church, so we can have that assured truth. Second, the gospel is worth suffering and dying for. Once again, look at that treasure you have in front of you. Men and women have suffered and died so that you could hold this in your hands. We are told not to fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can cast into hell. The life we have is not so precious that we should not sacrifice all for the gospel of Christ. Finally, the word of God is precious. We have a treasure in our hands that can transform lives. I encourage you to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it. Hide the word in your hearts. It brings joy to your soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We confess we can do nothing to earn salvation or to do any work of any type that would satisfy your wrath for our sin. Without Christ, we are without hope. But you, O oh God, in your infinite, infinite mercy, looked down upon our pitiful condition and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You sent your Son to pay the penalty for our sins. For that we give you thanks and praise. I thank you for your Word, which transforms lives. Our goal is to be molded into the likeness of your Son. We are sanctified by your Word. Help us, O oh God, not to be lazy regarding your Word, but to feast on on the banquet laid before us. Forgive us, Father, when we fail to do this, but we pray you would make us hunger and thirst for your word. I thank you for this local body of believers. And Lord, we pray that you will bestow upon us kindness towards one another, forgiveness towards our enemies, peace towards our neighbors, compassion towards those in need, and brotherly love and unity towards our fellow Christians. We pray all of this through the Son, and by the Spirit. Amen.